Welcome to Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy with Guy's Woodshop, and tonight I'm joined by Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. And normally we'd have Sean Walker on here, creator of Simple Code, but Sean is out tonight, so we're going to motor on without him and uh, just take more questions apiece. Does that work for you, Hui? Yeah, man. Absolutely. Cool. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I'd also like to say hello to a new patron we have this time, Ted Conway, and we sincerely hope that you will give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what things we've got going on in our orange shops. So let's get right into it. So I guess, Hui, you have the first question. Yep. This one is from Nate, and it's a pretty simple question. It's a nice short one, but I think it'll brew some good discussion. Hey, guys, I purchased an L-Fence from Ben Brunick. So far, I've used it for long bevels. Do any of you use an L-Fence in your workflow? If you do... What other procedures is it good for? So I I recently built a, an L-Fence. And if you don't have one and you're thinking about getting one, you don't want to build one. Ben Brunick from the Woodworkers Podcast actually uh, sells one on his website. And it comes... Chalkstone Woodworking. Correct. And it, it it's, it's not a bad price. And it also comes with two um, micro jig dovetail clamps, I believe they're called. Anyway. Do you uh, have it's an affiliate a, link? I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i get i get a kickback i get uh i get a shout out every time i you know anytime you use my link uh no um it, it's just available if that's what you want or you can build your own i actually ended up building up building my own and uh it works pretty well it's very simple in fact actually the first time i ever heard about an fence was in an article by uh bob van dyke uh, on fine woodworking magazine. In fact, actually, if you get a chance, you should read that article because it talks about exactly answering your question. What are the other procedures that you can use an elephants for? So you can use it for like doing dados and rabbit. Well, not dados, but rabbits. Um, you can do it for any type of, uh, template guided, uh, cutting straight line template guided cutting. Um, there's a bunch of different things on there. I don't want to name them all because, I want to shoot the question over to Guy and give him an opportunity to answer the question. Do you use an L-Fence? First off, I guess be the first thing to ask, or have you used one? And I think a better question is, it, are there maybe other things that you can use instead of an L-Fence for very similar operations? Well, I mean, I, I've seen the L-Fence before, and when I was first exposed to it, it's from that article in Fine Woodwork, and like you mentioned, from Bob Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. It looked really interesting. I was like, man, I'd like to have one of those. It'd be really cool. And I've never made one. <laughs> I I understand the concept of it. I understand the benefits of it. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where if you have it, you'll use it and you'll be glad you have it. Right. But if you don't have it and you've already got procedures lined up for everything else that mm-hmm. it can do, you won't miss it. Right, right. So that being said, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I've never tried one. And I, I, I really don't have a, that's okay. I really don't, I don't think I have a desire to do it. What do you got going on there, Hui? Oh, we got tornado warnings here in uh, North Alabama. You know, the naders. <laughs> naders? Tornadoes. Oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> sorry uh i'll try to be uh i'll try to mute my <laughs> sorry i'll try to mute my microphone when well, i'm not, not talking. talking don't mute it yeah yeah Leave that on yeah but no I, I i i see the advantage of it and i think for certain operations especially like um doing long miters long case miters i think it has a definite place um but i just i've never found a it's never, I've never been like, oh, you know, it'd be great right now having an offense. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I built one just because I, it had been on my radar to build one for a while, um, because I had read the article. It's like, hey, I could I could do that, you know. And it's like, ah, I won't take that long to build it. And so I built it, and then I think I've used it once. <laughs> just once? What'd you use just, it for? Um, I used it for a double taper. So uh, okay. one side was a, a taper, and and uh, you know I have a tapering jig. But it's such a steep and long taper that it wouldn't fit on my tapering jig. But ultimately, I mean, I could just totally make another. I, I have the same tapering jig as you do, guy. But, you know, there are certain limitations in terms of how long and how deep of a taper you can do with it. Uh, in this case, you know, you kind of make a template. Use that template. And if you've got multiple pieces to make with the L fence, you can go ahead and just, you know, repeatedly cut those tapers without having mm -hmm. to make some type of like tapering jig or whatnot. But but I, I love that idea. And yeah, I do remember that article about making long miters uh, or uh, identical box miters. That's really cool, too. So you kind of make a you make this essentially hook. That's the length of the side of the box or whatever that you have to uh, cut. And so because you're using the same length with the hook on it against the fence, you're able to make the, the miters the same length. It's pretty neat. Uh, I, Nate, if you get a chance, definitely read that article. Um, I don't know if it's on their free site or not because I'm always logged in. But if not, uh, I think Bob Van Dyke made it or... Uh, Fine Woodworking Magazine made a YouTube video about it too, so yeah. check that out. Yeah. Um, it's definitely helpful. But yeah, mm -hmm. it is very it, it is very handy. But there, up until now, I not hadn't used one, and it sounds like the same thing with you, guy. You hadn't used one ever. Um, so there are a lot of things you can do with it that sort of replace maybe some unitasking jigs or whatnot. Yeah. So, all, all right, right, guy, I'm going to go ahead and push it back to you. All right, and this question is comes from Chris, and he says, uh, or asks, I am looking to build a new bench that will serve many functions. It would be an outfeed table, assembly bench, finish bench, and anything else I see fit to use it for. I'm very intrigued with the Ron Polk smart bench design and will most likely go that route. The big question comes down to what type of hold down clamping surface is best. I see lots of people do numerous T-tracks and also use new style clamps designed for this. But on the other end is the numerous dog holes like an MFT top or Festival MFT top. I do currently have a track saw that I use a fair amount to break down items also. Um, or excuse me. I do currently have a track saw that I use a fair amount to break down items too unwieldy to use on my small contractor's table saw. Which design do you think is better and why? If you choose the dog hole design, is there any preference on three quarter inch holes versus 20 millimeter holes? Great podcast and keep up the work, Chris. So first I want to discuss the Ron Polk smart bench. Okay. Um, for people that aren't aware of it, it's, it's two four by eight sheets of plywood mm -hmm. with a, grid design in the middle and large holes around the outside of it. Yep. I think it's maybe like eight or 10 inches tall. Mm -hmm. It's really designed to be put on like workhorses and taken around to job sites yep. and give the ability to, to put tools and stuff inside the bench into large holes yep. between the two. And it's got holes in the top that are kind of like the Festool MFT or the multifunction table. Mm-hmm. Anyways, if you don't know what it is, just do a Google search for Ron Polk workbench and it'll come up. There's a bunch of different variations of the two. There's small ones, big ones, medium ones. So this big question really has to do with the hold down clamping surface. Um, I'm going to attack the first part. Mm -hmm. And it says, I see lots of people do numerous T-tracks and all the new style clamps designed for this. Mm -hmm. Yep. <clears throat> I am not a fan at all, in the least whatsoever, of using T-tracks on the top of a workbench or a work holding surface. Mm -hmm. And here's why. Crap gets in the T-tracks. 
Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> I know that I've seen people on YouTube that go, oh, this is so wonderful. And I put in the, com- I add in the comment, it's like, aren't you worried about crap getting in the teeth? Oh, no, it's fine. I just brush it out. Well, that just gets old really quick. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest with you. Um, I cannot see having a, uh, is it effective? Yeah, maybe. And there's lots of cool stuff that can fit in those T tracks. However, they're just going to get caked up with, with too much crap too quick. If you use it for anything other than, you know, just holding work, work down, it's just going to get, they're just going to get full. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually have the two sets. It's not. It's not like all the way all over my uh, assembly table. Like a big grid system. Right. Right. It's just along the edge, and I can tell you that I don't. I just don't think it's that useful. I would say that on the face, it's kind of useful if you're not using like some type of vacuum holding system or whatnot. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have it on the face. I'm sorry. My dogs are just going crazy with everything, you know, right. sirens it's and right. tornadoes and everything. Um, but on the face of the workbench, it helps because it's kind of nice when you're doing edge banding, things like that. Uh, but those aren't the issues in terms of getting crap in those t-tracks right it's not so much of an issue um i have not used the ones on the top of the edge of my workbench uh i just honestly everything i've needed have just been the dog holes in there and there are just so many different types of clamps you can use the micro jig uh, dovetail clamps they fit in there you know um and all the different uh i mean armor makes a Armor Tools makes a whole bunch of different clamps that go into there. Uh, um, TSO, I think Veritas makes a whole bunch of dog hole type clamps that can go. In. It's that there's just it's so many versatile different types and different price levels of work holding things for the dog holding pattern. Uh, I just yeah. think you're better off uh, with that. I, I for my for my outfeed table, I have a. Festival MFT top. And for those that aren't familiar with the Festival MFT top, again, I would suggest looking it up on Google. Basically, it's a top that's about two by four, roughly. Yeah. And um, it's got a bunch of holes spaced 93 millimeters apart mm-hmm. or 96 millimeters apart, excuse mm-hmm. me. It's based mm-hmm. on the 32 millimeter system. Yep. Um, and they're all perfect angles, uh, perfect 90 degrees to one another. Mm-hmm. It's really handy. There's there's all kinds of clamps and stuff that can go in these holes. The only real disadvantage to it is when I'm using it as an assembly table and I'm doing anything with screws. Falls through. Yeah, they fall through the holes. Yeah. But at least I don't get kicked up with crap either. Right, like right. It just falls on the floor, yeah. But uh, and, and the, the question of, you know, if you choose dog holes... Chris, one of Chris's questions, is there a preference on three quarter holes versus 20 millimeter holes? Yeah. Myself, since I have some of the accessories already, I prefer the 20 millimeter holes. It's just what I have. And when I move forward to buy something new for it, it's got to work for the 20 millimeter holes. But from, in most cases, they make everything for 20 millimeter. I should say they make everything in three quarter for the most part that they do for 20 millimeter. Actually, 20 millimeter is the more accepted standard. Yes. Yes. Three quarter inch holes. Unless so what, you know, I know like the armor, everything comes three quarter inch and you have to buy the 20 millimeter adapter or something. The 20 like millimeter uh, post for it. Yeah. So. So I went the 20 millimeter hole route as well, because when I was first building my assembly table, golly, seven years, six, seven years ago, um, the more prevalent at the time was 20 millimeter holes. And they were just starting to have, uh, companies were just starting to roll out like three quarter inch hole um, adaptive tools. And for that reason, because... You know, you could get the Quaz dogs, right? Those were 20 millimeters. And I think Precision Dogs made them and Veritas made them and whatnot. Those were the more prevalent ones. 
and the 20 millimeter dogs were the ones that everybody had because it was, you know, Festool was pretty much the first one that can't come out with that MFT style top, you know, well, well they, yeah. I think they invented it, right? The system. So it just made sense for me to go that route. Well, Chris, now I, I think you could go either way. It just depends on, you know, what system you're in. If, if you're kind of using a lot of Festool type stuff, then the 20 millimeter dog holes system might work better for you because they might adapt a little bit better um with your teeth with your track like your track saw right so the dogs can actually fit in the tracks right um at least the ones i have i think you have the same ones right the quaz dogs yeah the rail dogs the rail dogs so uh it it really sort of depends on maybe what system you're using if it doesn't really matter to you and golly i don't know at this point they probably make three-quarter inch dogs that actually are adapted to you know the festool um track saw so that might be the case i don't know but you'll have to look into it it just make sure whatever it is that you choose whether it be the three quarter inch or the 20 millimeter that it is adaptive to whatever predominantly tool set you're using yeah yeah all right so we why don't you grab the next question Man, without Sean here, we're just like rolling right along, you know, because it's only two people that are responding. (laughs) So this is from Muhammad, and he says, Hey, guys, I'm a huge fan of the show. I've been listening for a few months now, and as a novice woodworker, I've been learning a lot. I'm generally in my shop alone. I'm looking to build out a first aid kit. I've got the basic tweezers and alcohol I use pretty regularly for uh, splinters and whatnot, but... I feel like having a proper first aid kit would make sense around all the blades I've got going. I've been looking I've been looking at tourniquets something <laughs> I, <laughs> something I absolutely hope I never have to use, but just trying to be on top of safety. Love to know if you if you guys keep something nearby like that just in case God forbid something were to happen. Thank you for the great show. Stay well. So that's kind of a uh yeah very extreme case tourniquet funny enough when i uh, a buddy of mine i was at a gym and one of the guys that i used to work out uh, i work out at a gym one of the guys i used to work out with was a former special forces guy and he had a whole bunch of these first aid kits and he gave them to all of our workout crew and I actually got one of them and it's pretty neat. You know, it's got the stuff that clots up blood really fast and, mm. you know, uh, the, the, the big gauze and the tourniquet and whatnot. I've never used it. And you know why I've never used it? Because it doesn't have any band-aids in it. <laughs> there are no band. I mean, like, you know, for most common yeah. cuts, the most cuts I get are when I'm using my chisels, to be honest. Okay. I'm getting cuts on on the, my finger because the side bevel of my chisels are just so stinking sharp. Um, or I'm using a razor blade or something and it just slips and cuts my finger. But more often than not, those are the types of cuts and things that I'm dealing with. I wouldn't say that it's a bad idea to have a tourniquet, you know, just for in case of emergency or even to have a kit like what I have. I'm not saying that it would be a bad idea. In fact, actually, you know, luck always pre- favors the prepared, right? But I think the most important thing is making sure that you've got something to clean your cuts, you know, just like alcohol, uh, uh, what is it, uh, hydrogen peroxide, some different various size Band-Aid, Band-Aids and, um, and maybe some antibiotic cream. I don't know. That's, a, that's pretty much the, most, the stuff that I use the most. And it's not even inside the shop. It's in the house because my shop is connected to my house. So... Yeah now you use your wife's a nurse right guys so so you might have what do, what do you got you get do you guys have uh you guys well, got an iv drip or what no <laughs> i mean in the shop i have a a, a bona fide first aid kit mm-hmm. you know it's got the the ace bandages and the cold yeah. compresses and it's got all that stuff right and it does have band it actually does have band-aids in there yeah. um that is on the side of my bench where it's easy to find and clearly marked and defined because it's not always just me in the shop. 
And, you know, I, it's one of those things I never hope I have to really open up and use. I do have a drawer in my shop that is nothing more than band-aids. Yeah. Which are just the, the regular flex band-aids. And then I also have some special ones that go like around fingers and knuckles. Oh, I got to get those. Yeah. Those are handy to have. And, you know, to be honest with you, if I cut myself in the shop, the first thing I do is I have some hydrogen peroxide, which is also in that same drawer. Mm-hmm. I squirt some hydrogen peroxide in there. And then I take CA glue. Regular CA glue. Not, regular not old the... CA glue. Regular okay. old CA glue. And I squirt it in there mm-hmm. if it won't stop bleeding. Mm-hmm. And I hold it closed. Now, and do, does it burn? On. Uh, it's uncomfortable. I don't know if I'd say it burns, but you can also get a, I used to have some and my, my wife has gotten it for me before. And I brought a bunch into work, which is called, I think it's permabond or dermabond, Mm -hmm. but it's a, um, uh, sterilized version of CA glue. CA glue was actually developed by the military to close wounds. Really? Yes. Okay. Huh. That's 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 actually what it was made for. So, from what I from what I understand, I know there are people out there. Oh no, it wasn't. Well, okay, that's just what I heard, and I've read it in a couple places. So, um, anyways, um, yeah, it closes up bleeding wounds really fast. Yeah. So maybe, um, but maybe it will, it, it can, it can scar. Oh, uh, CA glue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, nine times out of 10, you're okay with the bandage. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, so you don't get, ble- my biggest thing is when I cut myself, I tend to, I, I, I'm a, I'm a bleeder. Yeah. So I bleed all over everything. Mm-hmm. There's just buckets of blood from some little <laughs> tiny cut and it looks like I've cut my finger off. But to, to, to have a, a, a full scale, you know, bona fide, put together by somebody else, first aid kit for your shop mm-hmm. is a good thing to have. And Absolutely. have it in the shop, not in the house. We yep. mm-hmm. bring it back, bring it out to the shop. Oh, no, that that's in the house. Ha- that's out in the shop. My okay. band, all the band-aids and everything oh, okay. that I use the most around in the house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I need that to have really a needs that. to be in the shop and a, and a place that people can see it if they need to get it. Cause I mean, what's going to happen if you, you know, like heaven forbid you, you, you cut three fingers off on the bandsaw mm-hmm. and you're laying on there on the floor and your wife's going, what do I do? What do I do? And nobody knows. Well, get the first aid kit. Where the hell is it? Yeah. She can't find it. And you're passed out on the floor from blood loss. Right. You know, it's a pretty extreme situation, but it could but happen. It can happen. Yep. So, mm-hmm. um, well, we yep. really got off the rails pretty quick on that. No, that's an important thing to, you know, mention too, is that it's not something, not just have it, but also have it somewhere visible that somebody else can get to it just in, yeah. for, for heaven forbid you're incapacitated. Right. So, yeah, yep. it's a good tip. Good tip. All, All right. right. Uh, we're, Back to man, we are really moving along. We're back no, it's to you okay. guys. It's fine. It's fine. It is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. Sean's not here to 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 help answer these, so it's taking us. We're we're getting them answered quicker. Yeah, but, but that's okay. So this next question is from Josh, and it says, "This may be more of a question for Guy, which is me." <laughs> Specifically, I've heard him mention trans tint dye multiple times on the show. As a hobbyist, I've used Minwax oil-based stains for quite a while, but I'm starting to understand why a guy dislikes it. Could y'all explain a little bit deeper on how you use trans-tint dye? Mm -hmm. After a bit of research, it looks like it comes concentrated and should Mm be diluted before use. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just trying to understand a bit more about the product as it seems preferable over oil-based dyes or oil-based stains. Mm-hmm. Also, do you have any experience with any water-based stains? And would you prefer a water-based dye over a water-based stain? Thanks for the incredible value the three of you add to the woodworking community, Josh. So 
let's get something out of the way first. Mm-hmm. The difference, main difference between the words stain and die. Right. Stain is what's referred is usually what you're looking at when you look at like the minwax stuff, the oil-based stains mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Verathane or any anybody's stain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a little, I think I may have mentioned this on the show before, but I know I talk, talk, I've talked a lot about this before. When you look at, you go back in history and you look at uh, clothes, colors like blue and especially purple were considered only to be worn by royalty. Right. Yep. And there's a reason for that. And it has nothing to do with the color itself. It has to do with what they used to stain or dye the clothes with, mm-hmm. which is dirt. Mm. They used blue or purple dirt. Right. Very rare stuff. And only the rich people could afford it. Right. That's why it was associated with people that are rich or royalty. royalty. So let's fast forward a little bit and talk about the difference between a dye and a stain. Most of the stains you get, like the Minwax oil-based stains, you know, you've got all that crap in the bottom. Yep. Guess what that is? Dirt. It's dirt. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. It's literally dirt. Yeah. In the bottom of there. And you've got to mix it up and put it in a solution. Unfortunately, the size of particles of that color are fairly large. I don't know the exact molecular structure, the, 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 the exact size of them, but mm-hmm. but they're they're very large. Let's just say, for sake of argument, they're the size of you know a golf ball. Yep. Um, in this analogy, anyways, so you've got these these particles that are the size of golf ball and you have to make sure that the pores of the wood are open enough to accept that golf ball sized stain. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just going to sit on top of the wood. And then when you wipe it off, guess what happens? Mm -hmm. You wipe off the particles of dirt. So, um, if you're using something like a, a, a Minwax oil stain or any oil-based stain that's using this this real you know this big chunks of dirt in the bottom of it, you really don't want to sand past 150. Uh-huh. And it doesn't work real well on on woods like tight grain woods like a maple or a cherry. Mm, okay. Not that you want to stain cherry anyways. Mm-hmm. Um. But it works really well on open grain woods like ash and oak. Right, right. And the higher you sand the material, the more basically you're off. clogging off the pores, Correct. right? Yeah. And most of the problems people have when they when they do stuff like this is they take a piece of wood and they go, oh, I'm gonna use this as my test piece, and they write it, they wipe the stuff on it. Oh yeah, it looks really good. And then they make their piece and they sand it to 180 or 220 and they put the stain on there. It doesn't look anything like my sample. Well, because it's not sanded to the same grit. So let's talk about dyes real quick before right. I, you know, get, before I completely go off the rails. The dye particles are much smaller. So before, when we had that golf ball size thing, yep. now we're talking about the speck of dust, right, right, in comparison. So it penetrates deeper and more evenly into the wood than a stain will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The trans tint dyes are meant to be mixed with, you can either do it, mix it with water or I use denatured alcohol. Right. Right. Uh, the denatured alcohol seems to flash off a little bit faster and I can get back to work and it does, it still raises the grain, but not as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've just had very, very good luck with it when I use it. Do um, you, so, so dyes also, excuse me, stains also sometimes have the tendency to blotch, correct? Well, so, so will dyes. So will dyes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't, you know, just inherent no, of one type no. of thing. Yeah. That's just inherent of the wood. 
itself right. and, and okay. different, you know, the, the, the pore structure is more open in some areas than it is in other areas. And that, that's what causes blotching and the, the, uh, material soaks in different, different levels. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but can I ask yes, you a question? The, the, the trans tint dye mixed with water alcohol, in my opinion, is, is really, really good. Yeah, go ahead. Wait. So there are these water-based stains mm-hmm. that, are they actually stains or are they dyes? You, if you look at a ball, it's really confusing because if you look at a, a thing of like uh, general finishes, mm-hmm. they call it dye stain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I've used that stuff before. I've used it quite often, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it works really well. I like the general finishes dye stain. I, it's more of a dye. Okay. I, th- they, I think they put that on there because people, it can, it can confuse people. Right. right. So they call it dye stain, just say it's more of a, a, a homologous thing or it's just like everything combined into one right and anything that imparts any color is a stain right like from, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 just a general term so then the minwax the minwax oil oil based stain is an actual stain that's an actual stain yeah gotcha okay okay yeah it takes a long time to dry and you, yep. you have to be very consistent with your sanding and you can't sand to a higher grit with it which is not a big deal anyways right right Right. So, um, but the, the nice thing about the, the trans tint dye is you can make it as strong or as weak mm-hmm. as you really want to, because it is designed to be used, uh, as a concentrate and designed to be mixed with something else and it lasted 10 years. Well, I'm sorry about that, guys. We did have his power go out, and it's been so long since we got back online, we forgot exactly where we were. So, <laughs> sorry about that. We were talking about minwax stains and trans tint dyes. I recommend the trans tint dyes. That's about yeah. mine. So, yep. we're going to move on to the, the, to the next question, which is Hui. So, go ahead and. All right. This is from Tyler. He says, hey, guys, I'm a newish woodworker and notice that it's hard to gauge the actual difficulty level in potential projects. Maybe YouTubers just make it all look easy. What are some projects you would suggest beginners avoid until they establish a larger skill set? Any that look harder or easier than they actually are? Thanks for the podcast and covering so many nooks and crannies of the craft. Certainly a better and more entertaining resource than many Woodworking 101 books out there. So yeah, Tyler, I totally hear you. I think when I first started, I saw all these people doing these like really awesome projects. It's like, oh man, that's not hard. I could do that. A little did I know that it's there's just so much setup that's involved and a lot of different tools and, and all this um, other skills that you need to learn. Um, so yeah, uh, projects to avoid until they establish a larger skill set. Interesting. Um, I would say that maybe one of the easier projects to stick with or to actually do would be any type of really basic trestle table. So that's maybe one to stick with or try out at first because there's not a ton of joinery that's involved. But, uh, but I think, you don't um, think there's a ton of joinery involved in that in a trestle, a trestle table? table? Well, I mean, it's, well, I guess it's more dis- well, I don't know. I, maybe it's hard for me to gauge what are great beginner projects because that was one of the first projects I ever did was a, was a mm-hmm. trestle table. Um, one that I think you might want to avoid until you establish some skills, you know, in my opinion, you, you want to kind of get those quick wins but maybe one to maybe avoid would be one with a lot of drawers where you have to fit a lot of drawers or you've got to get things, you know, all the drawers very square. You've got to get the carcass square and whatnot. So uh, maybe some type of like, I don't know, hand tool cabinet or um, uh, I don't know, chest of drawers or whatnot. Maybe something you might want to stay away from until you have a couple of wins underneath your belt. 
Um, what do you think, Guy? What are some maybe projects to maybe stay away from that just sort of seem deceptively easy but are actually quite difficult? And what yeah, are some I, projects that are, you know, that maybe he might want to tackle first to get those quick wins? That's a that's a very difficult question to answer, and the reason is is some people are more predisposed to you know. I, Here's a great, here's, 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 I'm a Mr. Analogy today. <laughs> Anybody that shoots firearms, mm-hmm. you know, guys can practice for years and years and years and still be just good, but not great, but just good. Mm-hmm. And then they take that gun that they've been practicing with forever, the firearm mm-hmm. they've been practicing with forever, and they put it in the hands of a female. Mm-hmm. First time they've ever shot and will just, do 10 times better than they are doing after years. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean that as a sexist statement, but it's mm-hmm. absolutely true, especially with, with rifles. Women are just really good with rifles for some mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are just more predisposed to do better at woodworking than other people. Some people, no matter how much, how many classes they take, how many, books they read, how many expensive tools they buy, they just mm-hmm. never get it. Yeah. Um, but there are some people that you give them a jigsaw, a drill, and a and a cirque saw, and they're making Bombay chest of drawers with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah I know. You, you can't really answer. I, I guess the, the one thing I, I always start off with, I, I do a lot of teaching. Mm-hmm whether it's the guys in the shop or in, or in the, the, the school we have. And one of the things I, I say all the time is woodworking as a whole is very, very easy to get right. Mm-hmm. However, it's also very, very easy to get wrong. Yeah, good point. So as far as a good beginner project, I think – probably the best place to start is what do I need in my house? What do I want to make? And then take it and then break it down to its simplest form Mm -hmm. of what tools you actually need to do it. You don't need, you know, expensive this and expensive that expensive this, but what tools you not want, but what tools you need to get that task done, get those tools. And you know what? Just start making it. Yeah. If it if it turns out like garbage, so be it. But who knows? It may turn out awesome. And it might be a trussle table. It might be a Bombay chest of drawers. <laughs> it might be, you know, a, a, one of the projects that, that I always that I always fall back on is the shaker side table. Yeah. Because yeah. it has a lot of joinery and it does have a drawer in it. Yeah. Or a wall hanging cabinet with a door. Mm-hmm. Is another great project because it teaches yep. you about hinges and yeah. frames and and how to make doors and all that. So I think those are good projects. Um, most of the stuff on YouTube, a lot of it, I'm going to say ninety percent of it, is for entertainment value. Sure, and they yeah. don't really teach you much. There are mm-hmm. some channels that do try to actually teach you different techniques and does a little bit deeper dive into how to get things done correctly. My, my biggest recommendation there is if you can't get to a class mm-hmm. is to read books, read magazines. It's a much better um, place to get valuable information from. Yeah. yeah. Uh, especially magazines like pop, pop woodworking or fine woodworking or for the beginner uh, the beginner to intermediate level, which is Wood Magazine. Wood Magazine is actually a really good magazine. I don't think yeah. it gets enough love out there. Yeah. Um, that's my take on it. I think you should build what you want to build. Good point. Build what you need, build what you want to build. Yep. Yeah, I, I definitely um, love having a fine woodworking magazine subscription. And again, not to try to plug them, but I just... I Yeah. I just enjoy reading the content a lot better. I can slow it down. I can absorb it a lot better than 
than watching it on YouTube. Um, and you know, it's vetted. I mean, it's going through editors and whatnot to try uh, to make be sure careful that, with that vetted thing. Oh yeah. It, remember the Ace of Christiana debacle. What? You don't remember the Ace of Christiana? No, remember Ace of Christiana? No, I do remember. Yeah. He used to be the editor for yeah. fine woodwork. And when they first started doing the podcast, he, he disparaged YouTubers by saying that they're oh. not vetted and who are oh. they to, to say anything. And people oh. went absolutely ballistic. So he had to do an apology tour. Oh, that was a long really? time ago. Oh, I did not know about that. Yeah. 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 Well, never Thanks. mind then. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. I'll apologize now. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, guy, you've got the last question. All right. This is from Bob Smith. I actually have a Bob Smith that I work with. Actually, Joe Smith. Anyways, doesn't matter. This is from Bob Smith. And he says, thanks for the great, the great show. The question portion is a great help. We had a, a house built four years ago and the cabinet doors and drawers were sprayed with conversion varnish. The leftover product was left with us for touch-up. I was under the impression that conversion varnish had a very long or had a very short shelf life and would not keep. But the painter said, as long as it was sealed, it would be fine. Something recently fell against two of the drawers and damaged the fronts, and I repaired the damage and tried doing the touch-up with the leftover paint. I assume he's talking about the conversion varnish. Mm-hmm. and a brush, but it was not good. A friend sprayed it for me with his gun, and they look great. The problem is that they have a glossy look that we can live with, but they are also a bit tacky. Mm. They were sprayed three weeks ago, and there is still a slight tackiness to them. Is the problem the fact that the conversion forest does not keep and is bad? Will it cure, or should I strip it? go to Sherwin-Williams and get a product they sell to the public and redo them. Thanks, Mm. Bob. So. That's interesting. Conversion Mm. varnish. Most of the the sheets that I've read on conversion varnish. Shelf life, yeah. The shelf life on them is typically anywhere from 24 to 36 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is an unopened container. Right, right. Once you open it, and especially with what Bob is saying here, if he's saying, it sounds to me, I don't know why I got the impression, but this is pigmented. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's pigmented conversion varnish. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but and it's, if the conversion varnish, if it's a water-based conversion varnish, and it's pigmented, it has less than a shelf life of 24 months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe less, uh, definitely less than that if it's been opened. Right. This stuff is not like polyurethane, which can last, you know, I've had, I've had, I've got a can of your polyurethane that I still use to this day. It's <laughs> got to be 15 years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it lasts forever. Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't, I don't have an issue with it. But if you have uh, something like this and you lay it down and it hasn't dried after three weeks, it's bad. Yeah. I and, think he's got to. Yeah. You're going to have to sand that back, Bob. And, you know, the uh, just moving forward for any finish that is questionable, always do a test piece first. Yep. And make sure it's going to work. Especially. Uh, especially if you're grabbing something out of the back of your finished cabinet. Um, try it on a test piece. Make sure it dries properly because drying improperly is usually the first sign of a finish gone bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a half open can of conversion. Thank you for the reminder, Guy, because I have a half open can of conversion varnish that I need to toss out because it's over three years old. <laughs> so there's yeah, no point in I'd me keeping it. Yeah, there's no point in me. Now, I, I'll, I'll keep the catalyst. And I think the catalyst, which you use very little of, stays good for oh, a very long time. Oh, so it's not time. pre-cap? It's regular conversion varnish? Yeah. It's Honestly. Water, is it water-based? Or? No. No. I'm actually thinking about getting rid of it anyway, because I don't think I'll ever use it again. It's just way too stinky. But anyway, that's another topic. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, the the catalyst. I think the catalyst stays good for a really long time, mm. but um, because it's just a twist top, you know, it's just a twist top mm-hmm. uh, container. Whereas the can, you know, is a regular paint can, but it's been in my shop for half open can for over three years at this point. So I think yeah, I just need chances to are it. It, it needs to be tossed. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the chance of using it and then having to sand the whole piece again. So that sounds to me, Bob, like that's what you got going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but you know, it's, it's the way it is. Um, yeah. I would go and try to find, uh, it sounds to me like it's a water-based conversion varnish. I'm yeah, not sure. They're, they're, I mean, I don't know. When I first read this, it sounded like it was a pigmented water-based conversion varnish. Now I'm reading yes. it, and I don't see that anywhere in there where it says <laughs> that's what it is. Well, he mentioned <laughs> leftover, quote-unquote, paint. And I think he's... Yeah, that's, that's yeah. maybe where I got it from. Yep. Um, I think that's where you're getting it from. Another thing is if, if you go to Sherwin-Williams, the chance of them having something like this is slim to none. You have to go to a Sherwin Williams uh, contractor, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. store. They're they're commercial stores. Yeah, uh, another good place to go where I buy a lot of product from online is tar- and This is not an ad for them. I don't get paid for this. Um, is Target Coatings? Yeah, uh, which sell the Mtex line, mm-hmm. Mtex line, and you can buy quarts of the stuff. They ship it. It comes out of New Jersey, so. Unless you live in California, you'll get it in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, and and I be- what's that? I, be- I believe they match the pigments for any of the Sherwin Williams. Yeah, they right? have the Sherwin Williams and the the uh, Benjamin Moore colors in there. So if you pick something out from one of their color chits and put it in there, and it'll it'll they'll it'll get mixed for you at that that same color. Right. Um, and it's very good. It's really good product, but. Conversion varnish, everything that I know about it, which I'm not an expert by any stretch mm-hmm. of the imagination, is that it has to be sprayed. Yes. So I think you can do really small touch-ups because we've yeah. done a couple here in my house um, where I've done, like I said, small touch-ups with the, with just a paintbrush. Yeah. yeah. But you know, a larger area, it needs to be sprayed. It yeah. just doesn't lay down flat enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that that's the same thing I've heard too. Is that you know small touch ups? It's okay, but it's really designed to be sprayed. So, yeah. yeah. So, Bob, I hope that helps you, man. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope it helps everybody out there. Yeah. So, while this now comes the time in our shower, we talk about what's going on in our own shops. So, we, what's going on in your shop? Uh, I did a little bit of turning. Surprise, surprise. Um, I had to make. Is it just a, a left turn, or can you turn right too? I I only turn. I I'm I'm a NASCAR guy, so only left. Uh, <laughs> no, I did some turning on the lathe. Um, I had to make these uh center columns for the leg assemblies on the tables on the table that I'm building, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just a decorative center column, but actually. On the inside, it is functional because it's a little door. The column will be a little door that hides the electrical channel where um, electrical cable uh, for outlets and whatnot will will channel through. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So got that done, and we sold our house. Uh, So my old house where I had my old shop is finally was put on the market, and we sold it. So I've just been doing a lot of that stuff, you know, just cleaning up the house and whatnot, getting ready for the market. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of got to do's not, uh, not a lot of shop time, but I did get, uh, to do a little bit of wood turning and, and made those, those columns. So that was fun. Cool. How about you guy? What do you got going on? I know you've always got a ton of stuff going on at work. Yeah. I got a lot of stuff going on at work at home. I'm still, I'm still working on the damn desk. It's only been four months. Um, but I, I'm only getting like five to six hours a weekend in the shop if I'm lucky because yeah. I got other stuff to do around the house. In the summertime, I got a lot of yard work to do. And anyways, yeah. anyways, so I'm not going to make any excuses. But I, I got the top done and I put some ebony inlay around the top and 
Looks great. Looks really good. Well, it all got ripped out. Why? Um, I wasn't really happy with it, and my wife didn't like it very much. Even though it's my desk, doesn't matter. So I ended up putting <laughs> in that inlay banding. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, over the weekend, and that came out really nice. Uh, the toughest thing to get is the corners right, not the miters, but getting the squares. Did you order that? Right. Did no, you order I made that? that stuff. You made that banding. It's beautiful, man. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's for I did a uh, article for Wood Magazine. Oh, nice. On making inlay banding, and that's coming out in the next issue. And that's actually the banding I made for that. I made three types of, of banding. And that's actually the banding I made for that. That oh, looks article. great. Yeah. Yeah. Is it so, uh, cherry and maple? It's cherry and it? maple and uh, black veneer. Okay. Cool. So, yeah, it came out really nice. But uh, I've got, once I get that all flattened down, I can finally start finishing it. Oh, you did. Did you show the ebony inlay band? Yeah, yep. I don't think you you did. Yeah, I put it's ebony stringing, and I oh, I, okay. I, I put it all in, and I screwed up one corner. I wasn't really super happy with it, but my wife saw it. She says, "I really like the other stuff. You should put the other." Uh, all right. Hmm. So I I I I pulled it out and put the the in the the banding in there. It actually looks pretty nice. So yeah, looks great, man. She she the thing is the ebony inlay is kind of my thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of pieces in the house already that already a lot of a lot of stuff has the ebony inlay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she just said it'll look different. And I said, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> I got nothing I got nothing better to do with my time. Was it hard was it hard to, to get out the old stuff? No, I just routed it out. Yeah. I mean, it was a eighth inch before. So for this, I had to make a three eighths inch mm-hmm. groove. So I just, you know, just stuck a router bit in there and zip. Three eighths inch. And then you put the new stuff in. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So that's what I have going on in my shop. And uh, I think that's going to about do it. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember that this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions and you'd like them answered by our talented staff, send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And you can reach me and find me at Guys Woodshop on Instagram. And where can you be found, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com and all the links to my social media on my website. And if you want to find out what Sean's got going on, you can find him at SimpleCove, at SimpleCove.com and at SimpleCove on most social media stuff. And hopefully he will be back here next time we have this conversation. So sorry about the interruption. And uh, all right. We'll talk to you later, Hui. Talk to you later, man. All right. Bye.